going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2 this morning. So, beloved, is discernment something that you pray for? Are you keenly aware of your needed dependence upon the Lord God for understanding and to be able to discern not only what is going on in this world right now, but also, and, and more importantly even, because without this you won't be able to rightly understand the things that are happening in the world, are you dependent upon the Lord for discernment to understand His Word? You know, discernment is a necessary in the Christian life. In many instances, it is actually, actually the issue, a, or a issue of life and death. And discernment isn't just something for more mature Christians or long-term Christians. It's not just for older Christians. Even you young people who are here today, you need to be discerning. And what a blessing it would be for a grace-saturated discernment at an early age. The wandering and the, the searching it could prevent. The heartache and the consequence of sin it could limit. Discernment is a wonderful gift from the Lord to us, and it's something that we should seek from Him. Because in this present evil age, there will always be false teaching and false teachers. And the question then is, is how do we spot them? It's not always obvious. In fact, the most dangerous and the most deadly kind of false teaching is that which is hard to distinguish from what is true. The 19th century Baptist pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon famously said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between what is right and almost right. And these sorts of issues, they abound. Some recent ones even, there's lots of talk today about a supposed revival at Asbury Christian School in Kentucky. Or the He Gets Us campaign that even, you know, forked out the, the cash for two ads during the Super Bowl. Of course, matters of discernment aren't unique to us. There was a need in the Apostle Peter's day for him to encourage discernment. And you might be aware already, but there is almost a direct parallel of, to the epistle of Jude here in chapter 2. Now, modern textual critics enter the chat at this point, and they say that one of them just copied off one another. Some of them even deny that Peter, actually, the Apostle Peter, was the one who wrote 2 Peter. But remember what we learned in chapter 1 uh, and the, about the origin of Scripture. It has divine origin. And so seeing the same thing here in 2 Peter that we would also see in, in Jude, I think it shows the urgency of the Holy Spirit in repeating the same thing twice in the New Testament. Jude and the Apostle Peter, both inspired by the Holy Spirit to say essentially the same thing about false teachers. And the reason for that is because they are such a great danger to the health of the church. They are a great danger to us and even to just humanity in general. Now remember the overall view of the book that we've been through. At the end of chapter 1, Peter commended the Bible. He commended the scriptures as the only reliable source of authoritative Christian teaching by which we may grow toward godly maturity. In the words of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of saving fit knowledge, faith, and obedience. And so as Peter 
did so, he found it necessary to defend himself and the apostolic message that he preached against the accusations of the false teachers. Chapter 1, verse 12, for example, uh, you get to see the allegation from these false teachers. He and the other apostles were being accused of peddling clearly devised myths. That's what they said. That's what he's responding to. And so instead, Peter reminds his readers that the apostolic message is founded on eyewitness testimony. And it's rooted in the infallible, inspired, prophetic word contained wholly in the scriptures. That's where our utmost confidence is, in God's word. Not in feelings, not in visions or new revelation, but in God's delivered and preserved word. It's, it's the gospel that is the power of God. And now, today as we turn to chapter 2, Peter moves out of that defensive posture, and he goes on the offensive. It's okay to go on the offensive, church. Uh, we need to do that from time to time as the church militant, the church in this present evil age, is standing for the truth, for God's truth. And so let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. We're going to read the first three verses in chapter 2. The word of the Lord. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, <coughs> even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for discernment this morning. Lord, that you would be gracious to us and grant us understanding of your word. Your word is true, it is right, it is good. And we pray, Lord, that you would conform us unto it. Help us this day, for we need your help always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so this passage raises some questions. You know, is there a more serious evil than twisting the truth of the Word of God? Is there anything worse than lying about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, or the meaning of Scripture? Is there anything more destructive than teaching the devil's lies as if they was God's truth? Is there anything more infuriating to God than the misrepresentation of His Word? <coughs> Excuse me. Is there a worse hypocrisy than saying you speak for God and the salvation of souls, when in reality you speak for Satan to the damnation of souls? Is there any more serious deception in the spheres of culture than being a false teacher in the church? And that's saying a lot because there is a lot of deception out there. This passage, which in its fullness goes to verse 8, but we only have time for the first three today, um, answers a, re a resounding no to all of those questions. But such is the deception being put on the church by Satan himself through the means he's permitted to use. <coughs> In fact, such deception is one of his primary tactics to assuage the conscience of people who are on their way to an eternal hell. Satan has always endeavored to infiltrate God's people with those who say that they speak for God, but in fact are speaking for him. And 
they're speaking error when they should be speaking truth. And because this is an age-old tactic of the enemy, God has repeatedly warned his people of this. <coughs> Excuse me. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're certainly aware of this. The Apostle Peter certainly is. He alludes to that in verse 1 saying, false prophets, false prophets arose among the people. He's referring back to the testimony of history with the Old Covenant Israel. If you were to go back, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 13, you would find that the Word of God says that the prophet who comes along and promotes any false worship was to be put to death. They were to purge the evil from among them. <clears throat> and the death penalty was even to be applied within a family. The family even was supposed to be called the first to act even, verse 9. Love for your family did not take priority over devotion to our God. And so this chapter says that if you're a false prophet, Deuteronomy 13, kill him, even if he's in your family. As such devotion should be true of us, but of course the punishment is different in the New Covenant. The chapter also says that any city influenced by lying prophets who in the name of the true God lead people away from the true God, well then that whole city should be destroyed. So God is, is very serious about false teaching. False teaching is not something to take lightly. It wasn't in the time period of, of God's people being marked by the Old Covenant, or it was, in that time period of the Old Covenant, and it is now, in this time period in which we live, in which we are in a covenant with God, the New Covenant. We might even say now that it is more serious because more light has been given into the plan of God and the mystery that was hidden in Christ has been revealed. Uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a few pages to the left if you're in 2 Peter. Uh, so you, I want you to see there this same concern as... Deuteronomy 13 being expressed, <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is referring to some who have come into the Corinthian church. And notice what he calls them, notice how he describes them, and then how he explains their end. So verse 13 to 15, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So here we have the same concept that we do in Deuteronomy. And that is that God's people will be infiltrated by satanic agents who come in the name of the true God, the true Christ. But they actually are representing Satan. Now, Satan certainly operates in many ways. But here, we're talking about very specific methods within the community of God's people, within the church. He is very busy outside the community of God's people. He's the dragon of Revelation 12 and 13, empowering governments to oppose the church, as well as being operative in every false religion. In cases like or an obvious case like Buddhism, which isn't much like Christianity, and then even to perversions of Christianity like Rome and Mormonism. But there is something very important that we need to see here, and Peter makes the same point in his second letter. What we learn from this particular passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is that the most destructive lies don't advertise themselves like that. 
the most dangerous lies don't just make themselves obviously a lie to you. Satan, when he is the most effective, doesn't introduce himself to us as Satan. Just like sin deceives us to think that it's pleasure. Satan often comes to us in partial truth to deceive us, sometimes even in the name of God. Now, the servants of Satan who endorse sin and error never come as the servants of Satan. They always come as the servants of God. They're always disguised as righteous and truthful. They, they are phonies pretending to be the servants of God, and they're the most dangerous. These religious teachers who name the true God and name the true Christ, but who pervert the truth and who are, in fact, false teachers. And again, in the scripture, they're never tolerated. They're never tolerated as sort of like, well, partially right, and then needing to be helped along to the fullness of truth. They are totally denounced and condemned to eternal damnation. There is a power in the person behind these false teachers, and that power is satanic. He was and he is always will be working to destroy the plan of God until his final end, which of course is certain, mind you. So, in the church at Corinth, as in Israel of old, as in all the churches where he can find a foothold, he will plant his false apostles, his false teachers. It's most likely that the Corinthians had no idea that these so-called super apostles were false apostles. They had no idea that these servants of righteousness were actually servants of Satan. <coughs> they had no idea that these representatives of heaven were actually the agents of hell because they always pretended to be other than what they actually are. But this text in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul makes no hesitation to call them what they are. Even though they associated themselves with Christ, even though they associated themselves with the truth of God and the work of God, <coughs> he says that they are false apostles, that they are deceitful workers, and they are disguised as angels of light, but in truth they are angels of darkness. Does that seem harsh, church? <coughs> we live in a tolerant to a fault society these days, and that has really put us in a position of weakness when it comes to these matters. Toleration is, is not helpful here. Maybe we say, well, well, you know, the Apostle Paul is different than us. He's an apostle after all. And that would be true, of course, but look at what he's modeling to the church in Corinth. He's hoping that they would agree with him. Or maybe we say, <coughs> well, the apostle was inspired. And yes, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, he was. In the other epistles that he wrote, he was inspired. But that's not to say that every waking moment he was. Scripture is inspired, not every thought of those men who were used to write Scripture. And it's clear that this matter was before him for a while. Paul's approach was quite different. Peter's approach is, is different as well. Their approach was to identify the opponent, call him what he was, and then fight him on the basis for, the, for this passion for the truth. That is a godly and Christ-honoring response. Uh, toleration, though, that's going to get us in trouble. J.C. Ryle, 19th century Anglican bishop, wrote, Controversy in religion is a hateful thing. It's hard enough to fight the devil, the world, and the flesh without private differences in our own camp. But there is one thing which is worse than controversy. It is that false doctrine is tolerated, allowed, and permitted without protest. Three things there are which men never ought to trifle with. A little poison, a little false doctrine, and a little sin. 
80, 80 years ago now, J. Gresham Machen used to tell students that the most important issues are not those which men are agreed upon on, but over those which they fight. And that's wise. And why? Because Satan will always attack the most important issues, and so they always become a battleground. Satan's operation is to falsify God's truth from, the, from inside the church through people who name the name of Christ and thus deceive and distort ultimately to damn people who, to hell who think they have the truth when they don't. Thank you. It's obvious that I need water, isn't it? Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Hopefully this will go away soon. Um, I think of Matthew 7, right? And that, that passage that uh, should terrify false teachers and people who falsely believe, where Jesus says, depart from me and I will never, because I never knew you. And so the most deadly of these deceivers obviously come in the name of Christ. And therein lies their deadliness. This issue of false teachers is a serious matter. I can't stress that enough. And in our text for this morning, we have false teachers described and then their, their fate their end beginning to be explained. But before we do that, I want to offer just two cautions. So here's the first caution. We shouldn't put every misguided Christian into the category of a false teacher. This takes discernment, but some people struggle with understanding things, and some people are, are false teachers. James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. So there is a difference between those who stubbornly advocate for something that is false and then with those who wrestle and struggle with doctrine and teaching, all the while prayerfully laboring to find out what is true. The Bible recognizes even that Christians will not always agree and they will not always come to the same conclusions on every matter. We see this in Romans 14 and 15, for example. There, the specific issue has to do with matters of conscience and related to tradition in the Old Testament old extra holy days that they had kept before, and whether they would eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. And Paul says very clearly, uh, you need to be convinced in your own mind, and you may not come to the same conclusion on these matters. And so, then we need to have a category as, as Christians then that allows for that. Let each of you be convinced in your own mind that not everything is a heresy and orthodoxy issue. Not every time you disagree with a Christian must you say it's false teaching and, and seek to bring the fire of God down upon them. But there is false teachers. And so how do we know? How do we know which errors are less serious than others? Well, a good place to start would be church history. Church history helps us, friends. Look at the creeds, the councils, uh, and what the church has always believed and confessed. You know, remember, Christianity didn't begin just five minutes after you became a Christian. There has been that many, many, many years of people who love the Lord with the same spirit that has sealed you for redemption that have thought about these very issues and matters. Of course, Church history is not infallible, and so ultimately, we must discern from the Bible what the essential non-negotiables are. And unfortunately, God didn't just plainly lay out like a chapter and a verse of these are the essential things, these are the non-negotiable things for us. He, that's not what happened. Um, it'd be really nice if he just said these are the five or ten non-negotiables that you must believe to be a Christian, but it's not, those it's not that simple. But the gospel accounts and the pastoral epistles are a good help to us here. 
Uh, that would be First and Second Timothy and Titus and the four Gospels. Because there, Jesus and Paul deal with a lot of false teaching and guarding the church against it. Those letters are, are given to instruct church officers for protecting the flock. And from them, you could constitute what is false teaching and heresy and what is an orthodox gospel. And so if you were to look at the gospels, look at Paul's trustworthy sayings, those credo statements that are found in those, in those epistles, if you look at the doctrines associated with the false teaching in those books, if you look at the truths associated with the gospel and sound doctrine, you could get a fairly good overall picture of what this core doctrinal message was, even as understood early on. And so the essentials that we find look something like this, and I'm just skipping all of the supporting evidence and just going right to the conclusion here for the sake of time, but these are the essentials. Number one, that, that God alone is God. It, monotheism, that there's only one true God, and He's glorious in comparison to His creation. Number two, we are sinners. Number three, Jesus Christ is our Savior and our God. Four, Jesus Christ is true man. He's the son of David and God in the flesh. He died and he rose again. He ascended to heaven and he's coming back. Five, salvation is by sovereign grace according to the converting power of the Holy Spirit through faith, not according to works. And by all of these, by the way, they imply the Trinity is essential as well, though you don't have a positive case for addressing the Trinity super clearly in the New Testament and those uh, books that I mentioned. It's clearly here as we think about salvation. And then six, Jesus Christ saves us from sin, saves us for eternal life, and saves us unto holiness. And that's just a summary of the essentials. It's pretty bare bones. I'm not saying that those are the only things that matter or that we need to be like these doctrinal minimalists or anything like that. There is a lot more to think about and there's much more that is important. But those six points are the essentials concerning salvation. And if one starts to move away in these categories to the extent that you deviate from the core, well, then you're moving away from the gospel and Christianity itself, as we'll see in just a moment. These false teachers for Peter, they were tampering with the gospel, and he could not allow that. They were casting doubt about the second coming and questioning that we were saved unto holiness, saved in order that we might be holy. They were doubting that. So the first caution here is do not purge every misguided Christian into the category of false teacher. We have, we have to have an allowance that because of the effects of sin, we do not always see everything clearly. There might be blind spots that we all have. You must allow that on some debatable matters. Christians will come to different conclusions and you must allow that even on important matters that we hold dear. And I preach on that even. I teach that as well. John always calls me a militant Baptist when he wants to mess with me. And I don't actually mind that. Uh, I, I would be shocked if I ever started thinking that baptizing babies was a good idea. Yet, I'm not willing to condemn Presbyterians. And I benefit from them greatly. The second caution it's the flip side of that. So the first is don't put every misguided Christian into the category of a heretic and you just cut them out of your life. The second caution is do not remove this category of false teaching just because the person you know is very nice. 
he's very kind and sweet, and, and you know, they profess Christ. Those seem to always be the kind of responses that you get when you want to start to say that somebody or something is false. It's, it's the fruit, really, of an unhealthy toleration. And so they'll say, well, look, you know, he loves Jesus. Look, uh, he seems to be helping a lot of folks. Look, I've heard he's a really great guy. And you get those three things. He loves Jesus. He seems to be helping people. And he's a really great guy. And in other words, he seems to be pretty nice and winsome. And so let's not deal then with these hard-edged categories. But the New Testament is unequivocally clear. And we'll see that this morning in the weeks ahead. That we must, if we are to be faithful, have this category of false teachers. It doesn't matter how much he says he loves Jesus, how nice he seems to be. If he's a false teacher, he's a false teacher. So the two cautions are really this. Don't make the category of false teaching so broad that it includes everyone who disagrees with you. And then secondly, don't make it so narrow that nobody could possibly be in it. And so having said that, we see six common characteristics of the false teachers in these three verses. Now, does that mean you need to have all six of these in order to be a false teacher? No, not that. These are specific teachers that Peter is confronting, but these are common characteristics that we still find today. So number one, they don't advertise as false teachers. It says that they secretly bring in destructive heresies, verse 1. Verse 1 says it very explicitly, who will secretly bring in. Secretly. It's not going to be open. It's going to be subtle. Jude 4 says that they crept in unaware. They sneak in undercover. <coughs> the verb used in Jude 4 speaks of a clever pleader attempting to beguile a judge or a criminal seeking to secretly sneak back to a place from which he was banished. Uh, think of how someone even walks if they're trying to be creepy, kind of that like low hunched down maneuver. Uh, it's sneaky. They, they don't want to be noticed. They come down in alongside of you, and there they are, posing as a shepherd, probably has a nice jacket and a tie on, and they bring in, they introduce. It's an interesting word. It means to, to smuggle in. Uh, they smuggle in, creeping along to get in and alongside the church. And they're never straightforward. They're never honest. They're deceptive, sneaky, undercover. They parade themselves as Christians, as pastors, preachers, evangelists, teachers, and they sneak into the fellowship of the saints. It's not an obvious thing. That's why it's so tragic. When the church makes a virtue out of tolerance to the point where it's so tolerant that it's intolerant of the truth. And in come these sneaky deceivers with their destructive heresies or the heresies of destruction or their heresies that damn. You could say it that way as well. Heresies. That word is often used in the New Testament and it's translated as a sect, like the sect of the Pharisees. And even the critics of the faith in the book of Acts who wanted to discount Christianity, they tried to dismiss it, just calling it a, a sect. The word in its original meaning means that which is an opinion. And it came to mean a, like a self-diagnosed religious opinion. That's what a, a heresy is. It's not the truth. It's somebody's like, twisting of the truth. 
That's the sense of its, of its usage most often. The idea that it contains a, a sect of its own concocted truth. That's heresy. The, the self-invented opinions that lead to factions. They lead to dissent and they lead to division. If you read 1 Corinthians 11, 19 or Galatians 5, 20, where the word is used there, it speaks of faction or dissent and division. And so they come into the church with their own humanly devised stuff and they fracture and they divide the church and they split the church. And they're doing it. They're doing it all over in the name of Christ. And people who stand for the truth are condemned and the church is, ends up being fractured. These are destructive heresies. That's what Peter is communicating. Heresies of destruction. The word basically means damnation. It's used five times in this letter, and it always means final, eternal damnation. It's used twice right here in the first verse, again in the third verse, and then it's used in the seventh and sixteenth verse of the third chapter. So, that's their subtlety. They sneak into a church who's lacking discernment, and they introduce popular new ideas that tickle the ears of the hearers, and they turn them away from the Word of God, and ultimately... They begin to pitch their error, which will damn souls. It's, it's really sad. What it assumes, by the way, as a footnote, is that a church has unsaved people in it that can be duped. That is why a meaningful membership is so important. That's a good reason why it's important to be a Baptist, even. Because we, we take pains and effort to, to know as much as humanly possible if one is really converted before we admit them unto membership. But it's, it's tragic. These false teachers, they probably dupe many of the Christian people, but they can only bring damnation to the ones in the church who are not true Christians. But they tend to populate the church with false Christians who come for their entertaining, moralistic, and therapeutic self-building messages. They're, they're men-pleasers and Satan-pleasers. And even though there are true believers who get caught up and carried along by them, they're not going to be eternally damned, but they still get caught up and are harmed and suffer because of it. Secondly, these false teachers, they deny their master. They deny their master, it says in verse 1, and this is a serious charge. It's one thing to deny your master, but there is more going on here. How can they deny the master who bought them? This is salvation language. It's ownership language. Who else can the master be, and what else could the buying be but Christ who bought them with his blood, Acts 20, 28? So is this saying then that they are saved? and then they are getting unsaved? Have they been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and now they are rejecting Christ? Was Jesus' atonement for them, but now they lost it? How do we understand this passage in light of the apostasy, which is all over the New Testament? Well, I think the best way is to understand that Peter is explaining things here using the language of observation. How would we look at these things from the outside? He's saying, these are people who have professed Christ. These are people who have been a part of our fellowship. These are people who would claim to have been bought by the blood of Christ. They've been baptized. They've taken the Lord's Supper. But they deny Him. Even denying Him is what he says. The fact that he says even is telling, right? It emphasizes this, this reality. So he's speaking 
as the apostles often do with this phenomenological language, this sort of language which explains the matter in the same way that it describes themselves, the same way that they would describe or present themselves. So they deny the master, though they would claim they had, they've been bought by him. But now, and, I, and this I think Peter is especially shocking, these men who made such a bright profession of faith and the blood and righteousness of Christ were denying this Jesus whose death, they said, was the purchase price of their deliverance. So they're not just, it's not just that their teaching is wrong. You see, Peter is telling us that they, in fact, they knew better. They knew better. They got the gospel. They grasped who was Christ and what Christ has done. He's the master who bought them at the cost of the, at the cost of the cross, so they say, but now they're denying him. Probably, given the number of references in this letter to the second coming of Christ, part of their denial had to do with the rejection of any idea that Jesus was ever going to return. So it's doctrinal in part, this denial of the master. The other part would be how they live. It's ethical. Uh, we see that in verse 2. And so listen, regardless of what they say, they say that they have been bought. Peter is saying the great issue with this group of false teachers, at least, is that they are actually, in fact, denying the sovereign lordship of Christ. They deny the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, it's being compared to sound doctrine concerning redemption. But even that redemption is false. So listen, there are heresies that could include denying Christ's perfection, Heresies that could include denying the virgin birth, denying the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, denying the atoning sacrifice, denying his bodily resurrection, denying his ascension, denying his second coming, denying his eternal glory. We could go on and on. Those would all be heresies too. But even if your doctrine of Christ and God and salvation is good on paper, if you could give the right answer, maybe even in a membership interview, if there's a rejection of the Lordship of Christ as evidenced in a lack of a contrite and repentant heart, and there's no mourning over sin and, and resting in Christ, but rather a celebrating and allowing of sin, then you are denying Christ. You're denying the master that you claim to have bought you. They profess Christ, but they live as if they have not been bought by Christ. And so this is radical, this is controversial even in our day, for we tend to assume that sincerity is the measure of truth. How could we say someone is a false teacher? He's so nice, she means so well, but there comes a point where you must say that you've denied your master regardless of the lip service you make. The way in which one lives, these false teachers in this case, was a rejection of their profession. These brothers, sisters, probably brothers, they were not denying Christ with their mouths so much, but they were denying Jesus as Lord with their lives. The third characteristic of a false teacher is that they lead many astray. False teachers lead many astray. Here they lead others astray, verse 2, with their sensuality. They advocate a licentious, shameful lifestyle, and many are all too eager to follow in their example. Perhaps, you know, they make grace a license to sin. But isn't it true today? 
People will always be interested in a, in a Jesus as Savior if they do not also have to receive Christ as Lord. From a human perspective, it seems as if the greatest barriers to the gospel are not usually those intellectual ones. There is usually two seemingly insurmountable barriers. Number one, the relational and social cost of having to leave whatever group you were associated with before and then to be associated with Christianity. That's especially what you see with people who are raised Mormon or, or Islam or Hindu. You're asking them to leave that and in a way forsake their families. That's a, that's a huge barrier. The other barrier are simply the moral demands of the Bible. They are these ethical implications of the gospel. And so people, if they could find a Christianity that does not require them to accept the strict moral categories, they tend to be all ears. You mean I get heaven? You mean I get everything good and that's it? They love that message. Uh, this is the bedrock of progressive Christianity. It's the foundation of this deconstruction movement in the church. Think even of that He Gets Us campaign. You may have seen those commercials during the Super Bowl, but it's, this campaign has been around for a bit longer than that. But they present Jesus not as the Savior, but simply as someone who understands you, whatever it is that you're like. The he, he gets you and he'll accept you. What they are actually doing is downplaying his bride, the church. Because for one, this He Gets Us campaign is not coming from a church. It's some third-party organization with no accountability. And for two, it makes it seem like the church is getting it all wrong. But then, you know, here's Jesus. He gets you. Here's this compassionate Jesus. That's deceptive. This whole campaign reinforces the culture, or reinforces what the culture wants to believe about Jesus, apart from looking at what the self-revelation of Jesus in his word says. Tom Buck, a pastor in the SBC, documented an interaction with He Gets Us, where he shows that they won't take a stand on abortion because, quote, you know, it gets in the way of Jesus. And also how their counselors will help you to find a transgender-affirming church and won't dare call it sin. Because, you know, again, Jesus gets us. Again, we have to be able to discern what is right from what is almost right. And we, we don't have some or want some third-party organization to pitch some soft Jesus who doesn't even exist. Jesus does indeed get us. And this is what he has to say about us. For, for from within, out of the heart of men, produce, proceed the evil thoughts of fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Mark 7, 21 to 7, 23. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 5. I say to my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you of whom to fear. Fear the one after, who has, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Luke 12, 4 through 5. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light to fear that his deeds will be exposed. John 3, 19, 3, 19 through 20. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3. Jesus gets us perfectly well. He knows exactly who we are and what we are. And something is so fundamentally wrong with, with us that he declares that if we are to have any hope of escaping deserved eternal judgment, we must be born again. Mark 1, 14 through 15, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Those are not the things that we hear from this He Gets Us campaign. But that is what Jesus tells about us in His Word, that He is a merciful Savior who offers forgiveness to those who repent and trust in Him. So there will always be those. There will always be those in the church who will gladly say, well, you know, if you don't like this or that, well, then just come over here. You don't like that, it's fine. You know, you, you don't like that standard, that doesn't sit well with you, that's fine, just come over here. And so we need to be discerning, friends. We'll say more about this in the weeks ahead, because their sensuality is a major issue and part of their sin and false teaching, but you don't have to even try very hard to make or to see contemporary uh, applications. With degrading standards of fornication before marriage, homosexuality, adultery, all the rest, people are all too eager to say, here is a Christianity that will work for you. You can live this way and still follow Christ. That's what they were saying 2,000 years ago. It's not new. Think about the errors in the early church. There are many of them, but these are still being supported today. Maybe not this first one, but there's the Judaizers who basically wanted to keep all the Old Covenant ceremonies. And then sometimes others with this, this over-realized eschatology where they would already think the resurrection happened or that Jesus wasn't coming back at all. But at its root, there were two basic main errors in the early church. Legalism and license. And they're still here today. Legalism and license, asceticism and antinomianism, these are the two root errors that you find time and again in these churches. You either have, on the one hand, false teachers saying that salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that there is something you must do, something that you have to do or prove or somehow even earn to have your status before God. You know, they'll say that justification then is not the sole ground of, or faith is not the sole ground of our justification. And then on the other hand, you have false teachers that will say, uh-uh, there's grace, so you know, just go and live however you want. And these things, they're always in tension with each other. Luther said that salvation, or that justification, excuse me, is by faith alone, and, but that faith that justifies is not alone. In other words, the only ground of our justification is faith, this gift that God gives to us, apart from any works of our own. Our works are not the grounds, but they're the outworking of our faith. The, the ground is grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. But if we have a true, regenerate faith, it will manifest itself in a different life. And Peter's original audience, these false teachers, they were apparently antinomian. These, they were saying, look, you don't have to follow these rules. And they were leading people astray. Many will follow their sensuality. We'll look at that more when we get to coming verses in this chapter. Number four, these false teachers blaspheme Christianity. That's what 
the way of truth is in verse 2. It's Christianity. In a way, they make an embarrassment of Christianity. Now, this is tricky because what some people are embarrassed by is actual faithful Christianity. But Peter is talking about a faith that gets a bad name because the followers of Jesus look no different than the world. It was a common accusation in the first century uh, for Roman citizens and even Jewish people to say that uh, Christians were immoral. They said that Christians were cannibals. Why cannibals? Because they had this, you know, supposed weird ceremony right, where they ate the, the body and drank the blood of a person. People were confused about what that meant. Uh, people thought they were incestuous. Why? Because they called each other brother and sister, and they had these things called love feasts. And sure, it sounds kind of weird, but that's actually just normal Christian holy behavior. The issue here, though, is people who live in such a way that it makes an embarrassment of Christianity because they are living just like the world. That's what it means for these false teachers to blaspheme or malign the, the way. In my own experience, the first people that I met as a young teenager, uh, the first people that I met who claimed to be Christian as a young teenager, they all did the same wicked and evil things that I did. The only difference that I could tell between them and I is that I had Wednesday night and Sunday mornings open for my own desires. And so I freely and happily spoke evil of Christianity at that point in my life. I blasphemed it because I didn't understand that what I was seeing was a bad example of it. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying these false teachers do by their actions and the way that they're living. God has called for a people made pure in Christ to bring honor to his name. We are to walk worthy of the one who redeemed us. We are to manifest good works. We're to love one another. We're to live pure, godly, virtuous lives so that Christ is not blasphemed. We're to walk as children of the light. We're to walk wisely in the world, circum circumspectly in the, in the world. We're to be like Jesus. I love what Paul says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We're, we can't do that apart from grace, of course. And we can't do it perfectly. Our hope is not in our ability to do it perfectly. Our hope is in that Christ is our righteousness and it's our delight and our joy to do that because of who Christ is and what he's done. A Christian would never think to say to toss away the moral commands of God just because it's easier. That's not, but that's what these false teachers were doing. We're to be consistent. We're to, we're to live the life that God has called us to live so that the faith is not blasphemed. Number five, fifth common characteristic of false teachers. <coughs> Excuse me. They are motivated with greed. With greed, verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Compare that with what we saw in chapter 1. When that the apostles speak what is true, that what they have seen with their eyes, what has been recorded in the prophetic word, the truth. These teachers, though, they give you what is false, and their motivation for doing so is money. You can sadly think of televangelists, I don't know of a single good one, some greedy pastors, certain strands of prosperity gospel teaching. People will tell you what you want to hear just so they can get your money. They call it like seed money 
always, of course, just seed money. Just sow a little seed, they'll say, and it'll multiply. Don't just donate a specific amount, almost like lottery numbers, and you'll get your return. There's even churches that do these giving challenges where they test you to give greatly to the church, and if God does not abundantly bless you back, well, then they'll give you back your offering. That's, they deceive you, and they're greedy for money. False teachers, you notice actually, they don't change. The two things that this false teaching centers on here with Peter are, are sex and money. That hasn't changed. Human nature hasn't changed. It doesn't change unless there is a miracle with a new birth. Pretty relevant, I think, right? These two topics. And, and woe to me or to any of you if we ever change a Christian doctrine or an ethical demand in order to get one penny from someone, whatever the reason. The truth is not for sale. So now, false teachers are identifiable, starting to be with these first five marks. We're, now we're introduced to their fate, and it's terrifying. The sixth common characteristic of false teachers, their destructive teaching leads to their destruction. So they destroy others. We've seen that, verse 1. They bring in destructive heresies, and many follow their sensuality. But here's the irony. As they destroy others, they too will be destroyed. Verse 1, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And there's a profound turn of the phrase at the end of verse 3, their condemnation from long ago. Long ago. So this is something that God has already foreordained for these false teachers, which is another reason to not see them as actually being bought in verse 1. That's just what they're claiming. They didn't become Christian, and then they became unchristian. See, they professed to be Christian, but from long ago, their condemnation, does Peter say? Their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. That's, that is terrifying, friends. That is a heavy weight for anyone who is professing to teach the Word of God. That should cause any man who ever steps into a pulpit to stand before a Bible with a Bible between the congregation and the, the one who is speaking to really do so prayerfully and humbly knowing the great weight of what is at stake for those who are falsely with wrong motivations trying to handle the Word of God. Their condemnation is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, God has not forgotten. God's paying attention. God sees, he knows, and God will punish. So the false teachers, they don't advertise their character. They deny their, their master. They lead many astray. They embarrass and blaspheme the faith. They are motivated by greed, and they will face judgment. It's certain. It's quite the picture that we're given, isn't it? And we're going to see much, much more as we continue. By the time we're done with this chapter, you'll be able, I hope, to recognize a false teacher if you don't already have a good idea now. But, you know, how alert... Let me ask you this. How alert are you to those who claim to belong to Jesus Christ? claim to teach on his behalf, but who are actually denying him, who will seek 
to make an excuse for disobedience. People who will willingly, happily, joyfully, who will not obey his word in the spirit, but are literally giving to some sort of a liberating theology in which their desires can run rampant. These people, the reason they desire to be teachers so that they can get rich by the people they deceive. How alert are you to them? This is a serious problem. How many people are deceived? How many people are deceived? Just look at our, our nation and the state of Christianity. In many places today, that number seems to be growing. Satan's goal, deceive as many as possible. God's goal, destroy them all. Destroy them all. And they're all around us. They'll always be around us. And we need to be discerning. It's not that hard to spot what is obviously wrong. Our task is to be discerning with what is almost right. That is the difficult thing. And thank God that he gives us his word that, so that we might know, so that we have that true deposit so we, of the faith, so that we understand what the gospel is, because not only is God going to destroy those who are false teachers, but he is saving those who don't deserve salvation. He is saving his people, those chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And his word is given to us so as to protect us, to give him glory, among many other things. And so over the weeks ahead, Peter is going to help, hopefully help us to have our eyes open and our ears able to hear so that we can detect and guard. But let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us discerning. We really need discernment, Lord. And we understand how easy, easily it is we can be duped, how easy it is that we can be deceived. And so we pray for mercy that we might be able to understand the, the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. Give us over to a greater understanding of your word, a memorization of your word. Help us to meditate upon it, to write it upon our hearts so that we do not sin against you, that it may be like a guard over our mouth so that we do not speak anything that is evil and false. Help us, Lord. We need your help, and it is our joy to know that in Christ you delight to help us, that you have given to us every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So to you be glory, Lord, to you be honor and praise. May your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.